On the rope this week is Ben Pettengill. You may have caught him on Channel 9's TV program this time next year, where he not only vowed to become the first legally blind skier to ski the Southern 80, he smashed it out of the park and then backed it up the next year as well. He's a seriously impressive bloke with a seriously impressive story. After losing 98% of his vision virtually overnight as a teenager, he's gone on to become a successful businessman, a motivational speaker, he's trekked Kokoda twice, he does Spartan races, he rides motorbikes, and he's a huge part of the Ski for Life charity. Listening to this one, it's a bloody good one. You're listening to Australia's number one ski racing podcast, On, on the, the Road, road. sponsored by Coldy's Tow Bars and Bull Bars, featuring Chelsea Stevens, Jack Coldrake, Mick Kelly, Dave Bishop, Tim Horbury, and Wade Bennett. My name's Mick Lumpton, now let's head to the 10. Ben Pettingill here, pumped to be on the boat with Mick Kelly, awesome podcast to talk all things, losing 98% of my eyesight, ski racing and a couple of other exciting adventures. Tune in. Welcome along to another episode of On The Road Podcast. My name is Lumpy and this podcast is a very interesting one and I'm pretty sure you will enjoy it. But before we go to Mick and Ben, aka the bank robber and the bat, we have another tea to give away thanks to our great sponsors in Savage Force Merchandise. So make sure you hang around for Bisho's question at the end of the podcast. We also have a sponsor in the spotlight, so it's all happening this episode. I hope you enjoy. Have a listen. <laughs> Losing 98% of your eyesight virtually overnight when you're 16 is the type of thing that can break a person. But our next guest not only came to terms with it, but has used it as a platform to transform the life of not only himself, but thousands of others too. Harnessing the power of mindset, not eyesight, he's achieved more in his life than most. A successful business as a motivational speaker, completing the grueling Kokoda track not once but twice, he rides motorbikes, he completes Spartan races, and has become the only legally born person to compete in the Southern 80 ski race. He's an amazing man I'm lucky enough to call a good mate. His name's Ben Pettengill. I'll just call him the Bat. Bat, thanks for being on the road, mate. Thanks, Robert. Good to be here, mate. It's, uh, it's good to catch up, buddy. It, uh, it's few and far between at the moment, isn't it? It sure is. It's a funny old world that we're living in in 2020, but if we've got to do it virtually over Zoom in order to to catch up, have a beer and have a chat, then let's do it. Absolutely. Speaking of, um, I, like, I remember talking to you early 2020 and uh, let's be fair, life wasn't going much better for you back then either, mate. Like you were stuck right in the guts of uh, a lot of the southern fires. How, how did that all play out for you? It was, yeah, like you say, it has been a, a crazy year from the get-go for us. And New Year's Eve 2019, we were... Uh, holidaying down at Malakuta um, on the sort of East Gippsland, Victoria, where we where we go each year, do a lot of skiing, do a lot of um, race training down there, and we'd actually uh, my my now wife uh, Amy and I had only only been down there for one day, and all of a sudden the the warnings came in about the fires, and we spent a good five hours 
out on the middle of the lake down there in our boat um, in, in pitch blackness during the middle of the day as the, the fire swept through the town. Then we had to wait six days there without power until the, the army was able to come in and the visibility was good enough to, to get a helicopter in and fly us out because most people got boated out of there by the Navy, um, but due to not being able to see, like you, you said in the beginning, uh, the emergency services deemed me um, a bit at risk in terms of catching, catching the boat and being on the Navy ship coming back to Melbourne. So we had to wait a few extra days and yeah, get flown and bussed back um, by Army helicopter, which was definitely an experience and a, a bit of a unique way to, to kick off 2020, that's for sure. Yeah, well, like, helicopter rides are always cool, but obviously they'd never met you, mate, if they thought you couldn't climb yourself onto a boat and get out of there. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, they obviously didn't know I was kind of familiar with boats and, and water and all that sort of thing, and, and on a, being on a big ship just cruising along eating ice creams, if they thought I was at risk there, or, <laughs> yeah, I'd hate to, hate to sit down and have a proper chat with them, but, uh, I mean, it did, didn't worry me either. Got to sit around and chill out for a few more days and... and Get a, get a ride on an army helicopter, which you don't get every day. So I'll take that over a boat any day. No, very cool. Very cool. All right. Like, I know it, luckily. But um, why, why don't we start sort of from the beginning and, you know, share your entire story with everyone. Where'd you grow up? How'd you end up bloody being here talking to me on a Wednesday night? Oh, right, let's do that then. So I'll take you back to the beginning, like you said. Uh, grew up very much as a, as a typical... Typical kid, loved the outdoors, basketball, footy, cricket, you name it. I loved it. Water skiing, motorbike riding, anything outdoors, any chance that myself, my dad, my family could get to, to sort of leave where we grew up, which was just on the outskirts of Melbourne and, and head north, whether it was to the bush, whether it was to the Murray, to the river, um, camping, fishing, skiing. That was that was what our priority was. And that's what we loved to do growing up and very much had a, a pretty typical upbringing um, and was pretty lucky to uh, travel Australia a couple of times and see some incredible things. And, and then everything, like you said, changed at 16 years old. I was one of those kids that probably uh, thought I was cooler than I actually was and used to sit right out the back of the classroom, just like you would have too, Mick. And I don't know what you're talking about. Front and centre for me, mate. I just wanted to... Oh, yeah, well, that's, that's why you're a teacher now. You just, just follow those footsteps. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, so, for, so for me, I was at the back. And I remember one day really clearly in year 10 science class, teacher was drawing a diagram of the human body on the whiteboard at the front. And something didn't seem quite right about it. I could see the diagram, see everything she was drawing but it was just this tiny little bit blurry, a little bit hazy, sort of like the feeling you get when you look at a, a really bright light or the sun. A couple of seconds too long there when you look away, it takes a few seconds to readjust. Everything's that tiny, tiny little bit blurry, like a filter over your eyesight. You can still see everything, um, but it's just like that mini headache for a split second. Now, that's similar to what it was like, and I just had that gut instinct, that intuition that we all get, I suppose, as people from time to time, that something's not quite right but you can't put your finger on exactly what it is. Um, and then I, I turned to um, that person who growing up always turned to when I needed some advice, needed some guidance, wasn't sure exactly what to do. So gave dad a call, explained the situation to him and he wasn't too stressed, typical dad. <laughs> and I was, I was quite happy with that, uh, that result. He, he told me not to worry about it. Problem was then he, 
He then rang my mum to fill her in on the situation and she didn't exactly share the same view as dad did. Uh, so, classic mum, classic mum. Classic mum, stressing out way too much all the time over everything. All of a sudden, dad's rocking up under mum's strict instructions. He's had to leave work. He's flown to school. Announcement comes over to come to the office with his school bag. Dad's grabbing me, putting me in the car, and we're flying off to the INE hospital in Melbourne to go and get a checkup as well as meet mum. So there we are. We spend the next six long hours getting test after test after test done, and eventually, after all these different tests, the doctor comes in and says, Ben, we've discovered what's going on. You've got an inflammation of your optic nerve, which is basically the cord between the back of your eye and your brain. So that's bigger than it should be. And the doctor then said, but this is a very, very common thing, very easy fix, very easy fix. Uh, what we're going to do is for the next month, we'll put you on a course of steroids. Now, when you get 16 years old and you get told you're going on steroids, your mind doesn't sort of um, rest for a second. Uh, my imagination started running wild with all the possibilities that steroids were going to bring to my life. Hey, you'd look good, Buff, mate. I would. I would. That's what I, that's what I think too, especially now when I can't see myself in the mirror. I do let my imagination run wild and tell myself things that probably aren't true. But, um, yeah, at the time I was, I was very excited and uh, doctors soon shut that down as I was thinking about dominating every sports team and um, the, going back to school, the girls were going to love me. This was going to be the best day of my entire life. The doctor saw my eyes light up and reminded me pretty quickly that I obviously hadn't heard of medical steroids. <laughs> and they'd do nearly the complete opposite. <laughs> it can't get both. I mean, it wasn't an option. Like, well, I actually had a had a quick little argument with him and said, "Mate, I reckon my steroids sound heaps better than yours at the moment." But <laughs> when he gave me his side effects of putting on weight and being tired and moody and angry all the time, but anyway, he he unfortunately knew what he was talking about and I didn't. So took his took his advice. Uh, got we were up to the top level of the INE hospital and had the steroid put in my arm and got sorted for the night. Mum and Dad, they said they'd be back first thing the next morning and uh, texted my family and friends, told them, told them that I'd give them the update the next day. And I remember really clearly those TVs that hang on the little curtain rails in the hospitals at the end of your bed. I turned that off, put the remote down on the bedside table beside me, closed my eyes, tried to get some sleep under the nurse's instruction. Next morning when I woke up, I opened my eyes and I looked for the first thing that nearly all of us look for these days when we open our eyes, um, our phone, looked to the bedside table beside me for it, but it was gone. I then looked towards the end of the bed, the curtain rail, where the TV was the night before, and it was gone. And I actually remember laying in bed thinking to myself, what's still here that I definitely know is still here? My hands, I could still feel them hanging on the ends of my arms and laying in bed, I held one hand up in front of my face and I couldn't even see that. I could feel it, but couldn't see it. And that's when overnight, I just lost 98% of my eyesight, sort of just like that. And it took two months, oh, sorry, it took another two weeks after the doctors finding out for them to do a lot more tests and eventually deliver the news that it wasn't a rare, it wasn't an inflammation of the optic nerve like they first thought. It was a rare genetic syndrome called Leber's hereditary optic neuropathy. That was one in a million. It was incurable. And I got to live with the news that I'd be blind for life. There's no way it could be fixed. And that was at 16 years old. 
Yeah, that's my. That's incredible. Like that's, you know, like modern day people get the shits when you know you turn on the TV and you don't get the reception you want. Like it, for it to completely change like that at sixteen, like what? Like what were the processes you went through? What did you put in place from there, or oh, was it it's... out of your control? I think I think in hindsight, it's one of those wonderful things that a blind guy can now talk about. <laughs> but <laughs> isn't look, look, yeah, exactly. Um, looking back now, I think straight away adrenaline probably filled my body. Um, I was in complete and utter denial, and there was a lot of a lot of questioning: why me? Why has this had to happen to me? There was no no rhyme or reason to it. I hadn't done anything to cause it. It was just one of those those freak things that that life sometimes throws throws our way. Um, so for two months, complete, complete and utter denial. And my family and friends, they were all grieving. And it actually took a, took a moment. Um, I can laugh about it now looking back, but it was walking into school a couple of months later that I walked headfirst into a pole. Um, being, a, being a teacher yourself, Mick, you'd know how many, next time you go to school, just notice how many poles there are throughout the joint. Oh, yeah. Way too many. But it was actually poll number one. I don't know what number I'm go, up to go now. The first one, yeah. Oh, it'll, it'll be in the thousands now, the amount of polls that I've, I've come in close contact with. Well, I was going to say, you uh, with with old Cody, we were doing some ropes and you were there, one you chuka, and uh, you almost added another one to your list, mate. She was very close, that one. Yeah, so, that, doesn't, uh, that doesn't surprise me. I, I can't remember all of them, but I can, I can remember that one. There's a... A lot of near misses and there's there's a few scars from um, a little bit closer than near misses. But this poll, poll number one, was pretty significant because it was that first moment since losing my eyesight that it really sunk in that this was real. This wasn't something that I could be in denial about forever and it wasn't something that I would just wake up one morning and everything would be better. It was just going to be like a nightmare. Um, it was pretty clear from that moment on that that wasn't going to be the case and I had to sort of choose to take control of the things in life that I could control and not spend my time and energy worrying about the things that I couldn't control, accept what had happened and, and try to move forward and make the most of the opportunities the best I could. Yeah. And it's inc- like, I can't even fathom it. And I'm sure none of the listeners can either, but like that point where you went from going, this is bullshit to, all right, how do I move on? Like, it's such an incredible transformation for anyone, let alone someone in your spot. Like that, it went on to obviously inform the rest of your life choices and stuff. Yeah, like hundred oh, percent. But I'll like, and you know me well enough now. I'll be the first person to put my hand up and and say that it wasn't just a, a split second decision at the bottom of that pole and say, look, from now on, no more bad days. There's, there were ups and downs and it was a roller coaster journey. It still is a roller coaster journey. There's always different challenges coming up that I haven't experienced before or um, something new that I'm, I'm doing and a new challenge presents itself because of not being able to see. There's still days where I wake up and go, shit, you know what, I wish that it had, I could see today. It would just be easier. And I think that's only natural. Um, definitely in the beginning, there were more bad days than good and slowly and Surely um, there were more good days than bad and there are very few um, bad days and um, I'd probably probably prefer and call them more now so um, sort of down moments instead of 
instead of whole days, but um, that's just natural and that's life. And um, like you say, definitely, definitely accepting what had happened and not only just accepting it, but embracing it, taking ownership of it and going, you know what, I actually need to be proud of who I am. I don't want to be embarrassed by the fact that I can't see it. It doesn't change who I am. It doesn't change what I can potentially achieve or can't, I don't want to let it dictate what I can and can't do. Um, I need to be in control of that. And it may mean I have to do some things differently, um, but doesn't mean that things are impossible. And that sort of has been one of the managers I've tried to instill in the day-to-day life and, and my day-to-day life moving forward from there. Yeah, but, um, and again, like the, the ability to turn that into a positive is mind-blowingly inspirational. And, you know, I mean, again, like I've become a bit blasé, like we're too good of mates now for me to be too in awe of you. I'll just continue to just give you shit and move on with our life like we do. But I don't, I don't want you to be in awe of me either, mate. You know me, I'm pretty, pretty no, down to earth and pretty genuine. Like I try, I try to be anyway. <laughs> we have to go. Um, do, do you think maybe without this, you wouldn't have reached your full potential? Like, did it did it open your open your eyes? Part of it. Yeah, that's a bit awkward. <laughs> um, yeah, like, did it open your eyes to just how strong you were once you got your head around it? Uh, it's a it's a good question. It's a it's a hard one to answer because how do you know what life would have yeah. been like without it? Um, there's still days where I wonder what I'd be doing if I hadn't have lost my eyesight. But there's so many things that would be different. Like it's, um, I think this year was nine years um, in May since I lost my eyesight. So that's now over over a third of my entire life I've I've had not being able to see. And you get you get used to that. And thinking back, I go, well, I may have been in a completely different career. I may have I definitely um, because I met my wife Amy through getting into professional speaking and motivational speaking, if I wouldn't have done that, if I hadn't have lost my eyesight. So I wouldn't be with her. I wouldn't have probably, I would have kept going to the, to the Southern 80 and watching ski races around the country, but probably never would have gone any further than that. I would have just been hobby skiing over summer like I, and social skiing like I always had. And yeah, that's it. Like the what ifs are the, the what ifs are endless, and I'm probably not the not the type of guy that that wants to dwell on those too much. Um, has it has it helped me? Uh, yeah, achieve and reach my potential. I think potential is one of those things that I don't think we will ever reach if we if we keep pushing ourselves. I think yeah, you, what you what you can achieve is is probably limitless in a way. Once you achieve one thing. There's always another daughter to push that little bit further if you if you're willing and want to. Yeah, beautiful. And you're, I I don't want to turn this too much into an ad. And I know you don't either, mate. Although I gave you the option, like your your limitless vision and your true vision concepts, um, like it's not necessarily about not having eyesight, is it? It's about you know understanding yourself and your potential for growth and you know, using that outlook to take yourself places, isn't it? 100%. So, yeah, true vision and limitless vision, both two, two main topics that I speak about a lot to, to businesses around Australia, to individuals, to school groups, and and both, them, both of them are, are very much things that each and every person can, can discover and implement. 
discipline in their own lives. I don't think it's something that you need to lose your eyesight to be able to do. And, and I've been probably able to articulate it in a way that you don't need to. I was um, obviously went through the fact of losing my eyesight. So that's what helped me discover it maybe quicker than others or um, yeah, went through, went through those challenges, which forced me to learn those lessons. And um, if you don't lose your eyesight, some of them would be a little bit more optional, limitless vision, uh, very much about your mindset and not letting your situation and circumstances that we can't control dictate what we can and can't achieve. And true vision, basically not judging yourself, other people and situations based on face value, getting to know um, yourself and uh, other people from the inside out instead of from the outside in because I learned pretty quickly and actually got told by a few people that had known me quite well before I lost my eyesight um, and they'd said things after losing my eyesight, being some of the friends you've got now, now that you can't see, they don't really look like your type of friends. And when I first heard that, I was like, what do you mean look like my type of friends? Why should your friends have to look a certain way? But obviously as, as people, as humans, we subconsciously have preconceived ideas and, and make judgments based on what we see. And, and I think we probably all do that to an extent without realizing. So yeah, true vision is just about being aware of that and, and trying to eliminate it. Yeah, well, absolutely. And we're, it depends how you live it. Like we're victims of our upbringing, aren't we? Like it, it shapes us and leads 100%. us in, in directions. And I know life one, I'm pretty grateful because you'd probably never be hanging out with someone that looked like me if you could see me. So, you know. Don't, well, don't, be, don't be like that, mate. I'll always be the first one to give you praise about your looks. <laughs> um, all right. So okay, if you listen to this and you're looking for someone to speak to your business, your school, whatever, get on to benpettengill.com. It's well worth your time. Enter in uh, voucher code MPC91 and that will give you absolutely nothing. But um, see how you go. No, we, we, we might be able to set something up. I'm not, <laughs> making, any, I'm not making any promises. But... <laughs> no, all good. Um, all right. So, well, it's a ski racing podcast. So, like, you've, you've decided to ski the Southern Lady. Like, how, how did that come about? Yeah, do we need to backtrack a little bit? <laughs> yeah, probably. I mean, we've got a little bit carried away, but that's okay. Yeah, so I, I think just to give to give all the listeners, like you said, a little bit of insight into into my connection to water skiing to start with. Um, always always loved social skiing, but didn't I wouldn't say um, did it heaps. Just just like a lot of families doing it over summer, um, and when when I lost my eyesight, that was a, a really massive quarter one, and said. Ben, don't worry about losing your eyesight. And I was like, well, obviously there's concerns there, but in terms of uh, some of the hobbies, some of the things that we love to do, both um, for me individually and as a family and sport and things like that, they pretty much said we will find a way around as many things as we possibly can. And he, he did a lot of research early on and found a, a helmet that, People use a lot for, for coaching surfers, coaching wakeboarders, coaching water skiers, and it's a, a head zone helmet. Unfortunately, they don't make them anymore. So my original head zone helmet is, is just hanging on by the skin of its teeth. Um, and that helmet has a, a UHF sort of two-way radio built into it. So the observer in the boat can, can give guidance, give instructions or coach depending on the way they're using it. So that sort of got me back into water skiing and first summer after losing my eyesight, um, we progressed slowly from 
the knee board to the skis just to build the confidence back up behind the boat. And one of the side effects that I don't actually talk about a lot um, when I first lost my sight, especially because it was so instant, was severe vertigo. And uh, the vertigo actually sort of was triggered um, in most of the episodes behind the boat um, very early on. So first few times got on the kneeboard and I'd go for a couple hundred metres and all of a sudden the, the boat and myself would be spinning around in opposite directions at 100 miles an hour. I'd let go and the, the guys in the boat would just be coming back towards me saying, just swim towards our voice, swim towards our voice. And I'd just be saying to them, I have no idea where you are. I'm, I'm, I'm moving a hundred miles an hour to spinning and they were spinning around with the exact same, exact same pace. And they literally had to come up and grab onto me and, and take it over to the land just so we could sort of regain a bit of balance and, and clarity. Um, even with the, the 2% eyesight that I've got, that made it quite difficult and quite challenging and scary. And we didn't know if that was going to pass or if that was going to be something that we'd constantly battle with. And maybe that was, going to put an end to the water sports um, prematurely. But luckily, the more we gave it a crack, I'd go 100 metres the first time, three or 400 metres the next, and slowly but surely build up to the point now where I don't experience a lot of vertigo anymore, which I'm nice. yeah, definitely definitely happy about. And I suppose that's just the body adjusting to the, the, the new, new conditions and yeah. um, new situation. And then uh, a couple of years later, when I was 18, started year 12, we went water skiing up to Lake Yildon. Um, again, just social skiing. And I'd only started year 12 um, the week prior, first weekend. Went up there and went out to do a, a big left-hand turn. And ski slipped out from underneath me and I broke four buttons in my ankle. Um, oh. the, whole, the whole sort of inner, inner ball of your ankle, that whole ball joint actually... It split off, flipped around under the skin, and it wasn't wasn't pretty. Yeah, but when, cool. no, it wasn't wasn't good at all. But the the probably most uncool part about it was at the hospital when the doctors were checking me out, and the X-rays came back, and they said, "Now, what were you doing?" I said, "Water skiing," and they they looked at the the sheet with my details on it. And they said, "Hang on a minute, it says here that you can't see." I said, "Yeah, that's right." but you just said you were water skiing. And one of the doctors literally looked at me from the end of the bed and said, well, that's a stupid idea, don't you think? That's probably, you probably deserve to be here if that's the case. And um, I got, got told after, after hearing that to, to never ever water ski again. And that was, that was doctor's orders. But oh, yeah, I'm probably not the sort of person you, you say that to. And, Two years later, we're skiing the Southern 80. It's now time for Sponsors in the Spotlight with Tim Horbury, and he had a great chat with Hayden Everett. Okay, Hayden, welcome to On The Rope. Um, really pleased to be able to talk to you today because you've got a history in ski racing, and I'm really keen to share that with our subscribers and then talk a little bit about your business. So how did you get into ski racing? Uh, I got through ski racing um, through the family with dad. Dad's always kind of had ski race boats early on. Um, and then just eventuated from there with skiing. Uh, we grew up in, in Mansfield um, on Lake Hilden. So we were always skiing um, 
during the week and, and weekends. So that's pretty much how, how we got into it. And um, yeah, just kept going from there. What was your what was your preferred weapon? What was your preferred stick, as some of the guys can refer to that? Oh, listen, I think um, my longboard was was the one to go go with all the time. So um, yeah, that that was my choice. And what about what about with your social scheme? What was your what was your trick? What was your thing you were sort of thought you were pretty cool at? Didn't really do many tricks. Just made sure I could stay up on the thing. So um, yeah, it was. Uh, Always out there just making, uh, especially social skiing, just out there doing even turns and, and stuff like that. So no tricks from me. Real purist, eh? On the bar, not not wrapped up? Nah, on the bar, on the bar. I used to, I, I, I skied social for the social class for a, a few years as well. Um, couldn't go past the, uh, the DC social. That was the uh, preferred choice there. And where was your first race? First race was the Southern 80. Um, that was in sub juniors. Uh, this is a 20k course. Loved it from then on. Who was your crew? Who was your partner? I had a another local skier uh, from Mansfield or Bonnie Doon, I should say, Dane Howes, and um, they used to own a boat called Hitman back in the day. So yeah, it was me and him. Father's good mates, Brett Lewis, was observer, and obviously my father, Ken Everett, was the driver. So um, yeah, good had t- a ball. Good times, eh? And so, what what was your what is your favourite race? What's your favourite venue? Oh, listen, you can't go past the Southern Eighty, mate. As they say, the, the biggest ski race in the world. I do enjoy all the River Classics. Did Sydney Bridge a few times as well. That that was fantastic. But yeah, listen, the main one was the Southern Eighty. Another Mexican flatwater specialist. That's right, mate. That's right. <laughs> That's awesome. And so, what's your best result? What's the thing that you hang your hat on and say? Geez, I, I did a great job there. That's that's the one I talk about the most when I'm talking to people about it, how good I am at skiing. Oh, listen, in, in the result, it'd have to be, you know, I've won mock and, and placed in mock a few times in eight litre. Skied unlimited a couple of times, but not so much in the, the podiums. At the end of the day, the result for me was just to get across the finish line. And uh, as long as everyone was safe, that was enough for me. I've known you long enough to know that you're very passionate about it and, and just competing was something that you really enjoyed, but have, you haven't been racing of late. No. What what went on um, uh, when you when you finally sort of thought, Jesus, this is pretty dangerous, this sport, and you, you had a bit of an accident, I think you're telling me? Yeah, I did have an accident in Robinvale, and it ended up being a, um, an accident where uh, I actually had fractures through my spine, and that, that's what it actually was. We, they couldn't find it for a long time, and prolapsed discs and, and all sorts of things, but... Um, after that, yeah, I um, I just backed it down a little bit and uh, and concentrated on on my work. Back then, I was earth moving, um, so uh, yeah, concentrated on on the work and kind of went away from the sport a little bit. Um, still stayed in contact with a lot of people in the sport uh, and always watched, you know, the progression of the sport. Yeah, got out of it, uh, out of skiing anyway, and um, yeah. Became a spectator. <laughs> um, you talk about what you're doing with your business life now, or your life, which has become your business life, and it's a really yep. good for um, people to understand um, what you do. So, um, tell tell people in, in you know a lot of people know that, but what do you do? Yeah, yeah. So I've got a, a, a graphics printing company. So we pretty much start from the very start with design concepts all the way through to um, your output, which is your print. 
and then the application. We've got a, a wide range of different things that we can work with and, and, and different applications for different jobs, but the main ones are um, vehicles. We do a lot of vehicles and obviously, yeah, we, we do a lot of boats now as well. Yeah, you're getting a bit of reputation. Uh, Facebook is full of um, work that's being promoted of, of stuff that you've done. It looks pretty classy and what you do is is to how technically uh, equipped you are to do it um, and how professional you want to have. Yeah, I think that too, growing up with ski racing, listen, back in the early days, God's gift was the, the boat that kind of... Um, started i guess the, the the evolution of ski racing like in terms of you know paint jobs and and you know twin turbos and and all this type of thing but um yeah that kind of took me by awe back in the day as, as a kid and you know uh, from then on i think you know with with john evans from race paint he uh he kept pushing the boundaries with more boats on from that with you know blown budget and and stuff like that so I've always kind of, as a, as a young person, always had that um, interest and um, luckily enough, yeah, I've been able to uh, create my own style now and, um, and not so much put it to paint, but yeah, put it to print and um, yeah, do it that way. And how, how did you get into the business, Aiden? So when I moved to Adelaide, I was going to go back earth moving over here. And my partner, Stephanie, uh, said, uh, well, you know, why don't we look at something you want to do instead of you no know, have to do. So, uh, yeah, we went down and ordered a, a rolling printer. Yeah, from then on, we've uh, just kept, kept going and going and getting busier and busier. Yeah, that's how it all started. So, yeah, very lucky in that sense to um, to be where we are. And and so how long have you been running it? We started in 2012. Uh, we first started in, or when we first started, I should say we started with the, uh, pretty heavily in the motocross scene, producing all the graphics and stuff like that. We still do them now. A lot of our concentration is more on the, the bigger vehicle side of things with cars, boats, trucks. Um, we have done some aircraft as well. Yeah, but we always still, you know, always go back to the, the roots and, you know, keep the, the motocross side of things going as well. Now, I'm going to put you on the spot here. What's your favourite job? What's the job that you, you you sort of look at and go, geez, I, that looks fantastic? Because really part of what you do is actually graphic design. That's a hard one. Listen, there's all boats are designed by me. Um, so at the end of the day, it comes down to what the customer wants, how the customer wants to set out the job, customers' colours, everything like that. But I like them all. But I like maybe different points of on different boats. That, you know, maybe um, one just, day I just, can put together in one boat and uh, for myself. <laughs> offend any of your customers, do you? Because they all no, no, no. Listen, I've just done Sapphire and uh, the new twenty three Sapphire. Um, that's one that's that seemed to have um, taken a lot of interest on social media. Public Enemies, the stock six litre boat there, did a bit of a combo with them in their van. A um, bit more of a different kind of colour scheme with that one. It, it worked really well. Those ones, Mistress, um, that was a, uh, it's not a wrap, more of a partial wrap, but it's still nice and clean and, and follows the colours of the boat. That works really well. Um, yeah, like I said, there's hundreds of them out there um, yeah. that you could say bits and pieces. But um, I like, yeah, I like all of them. I wouldn't print them until I'm kind of happy with where they're at and, and obviously the customer's happy with them as well. Have you got a place, a web page, Facebook, Instagram? What, what's your... What's your... The, 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 uh, 
the webpage is under construction. It has been under construction now for quite some time due to obviously um, having enough time to sort it all out. But uh, we have got all your social media pages. So we have a Facebook page and it's Rapid Concepts slash Rapid MX. And we have an Instagram page, uh, which is at Rapid MX Graphics. Yep. And you're doing work across the borders, although that's difficult at the moment. So how would you... Yep people to get hold of you um, and, and, and also for subscribers who might recommend you to somebody to do that do do their work um it's the easiest way to get hold of me would be just via the the messaging on those social media pages or feel free to obviously give me a, a phone call on zero four two six one double nine zero three eight hayden it's been fantastic to have you on the rope uh, in our sponsors in the spotlight like a lot of people around the sport you've got a history with it uh, yeah Add out to people that thank yous, you know, people have helped you along your journey. I guess the inspiration with my type of job, Scotty from AIM, Johnny from, from Race Paint, you know, all those guys I've, I've kind of looked up to in the past. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm just lucky enough now to um, be able to do what I love and, and for a sport that I love. So, um, yeah, that, those two guys, I guess, are kind of uh, heroes in my eyes with the design side of things so um yeah couldn't go past them and then obviously stephanie my partner and yeah that's pretty much it mate but yeah that when when it comes to ski racing it was one of those things that i think for a lot of people um you, you travel up to um especially the southern 80 being one of the one of the sort of marquee events on the ski racing calendar you travel up to uh, tracks a lot of crowds and you go and watch the race and it's uh, one of those spectacles that you see boats and skiers and teams come past at incredible speeds and you think that's amazing, that's incredible, that's awesome, but that's also pretty scary. I don't think I'd ever do that. But since losing my sight and I suppose adopting that mentality of nothing is impossible, yes, you might have to do things a little bit different, but you'll never know if you if you don't give it a crack and try and find out and, um, yeah, through... Through some friends of friends and um, a couple of guys that Dad works with, who you used to ski with, Stevie Berry, um, got in touch with him and got on to, to Dan and the guys at Ninety Nine Psycho Clowns, and the yeah the rest is rest is history. They were they were fantastic. In um, the first phone call I had with Dan, he'd been explained the situation before, and we all know what Dan's like when he hears <laughs> when he hears the scenario of. There's this young guy who can't really see much at all. He's essentially blind and he wants to have a crack at ski racing. And I've had this first conversation with Dan over the phone, never met him in my life before. And I reckon a thousand times I've said to him on the phone, now, Dan, if, if it's something you don't feel comfortable with, just let me know. It doesn't worry me if, if this can't happen. Um, but I really appreciate the opportunity and his response every time was, yeah, no, it's cool. Cool. Let's do it. Awesome. No worries. All right. Let's do it. Let's race. So he was uh, very casual, but very confident and um, yeah, very, very supportive in the, in the goal and the dream. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, well, that's not man. That's Steve Berry and Daniel McMahon. They're not too bad people to be hooked up with if you're looking to get into racing. So that was obviously a, uh, you know, a, a shortcut into where you got yourself. But I know you and I know Daniel pretty well. Obviously, you didn't just turn up and do it. There would, no. have, been a pro there would have been a process. There would have been things in place. Like, 
talk talk us through how it went from concept to realization. Well, first thing first was we had to actually approach Ski Racing Australia and and get approval to to ski in a race. Um, as far as we we could find and we could see there there hadn't actually, like you said, been someone who was blind skiing the Southern Navy. So we didn't know if that was something from a safety perspective um, that was even going to be allowed. So we had to get the helmet scrutinied. Um, there was a whole heap of negotiation and an application around the, the best way that was that was going to be to to compete in the race and, and ski the race and do it as safely as possible. So essentially what was going to replace my eyesight behind the boat? Was it going to be another skier, essentially a spotter? Um, and once we'd done a few training runs, Dan pretty much said that to have a spotter out there with you, the spotter would be having to watch you, therefore couldn't be watching where they were going. That wasn't a safe option. Um, Ski Racing Australia initially thought that would be a good idea in case there was an accident or in case we had to stop for whatever reason, then someone's in the water straight away pretty much next to me to help me. Um, but it was just going to be too dangerous for myself, too dangerous for the other skier. And that's when the helmet was um, the best option. And uh, that was, I suppose, when, when once we got approval that the helmet was, was approved, um, both from a safety perspective in terms of um, being passed as a as a safety helmet, but also from a communication point of view, and that replacing my eyesight to an extent, and having Dan um, on the radio guiding you through every single corner. That's when training really ramped up because we knew that that was happening, and um, we we had a had a good crack at it. Uh, first year round was in 2017, and that was the year that just prior to the race. Um, sort of September through until December, uh, the river was in extreme flood. A lot of logs, a lot of debris um, floating down the river. And because of that, the first time I actually went behind a race boat was six weeks before the race. Uh, at that stage, initially, we were keen to do the full 80 kilometre course on the Sunday, um, but it was pretty clear when when we weren't able to get behind a race boat until that time, I'd been doing a lot of training behind uh, our social boat, but just didn't have the, the speed to, to simulate what, what racing was going to be like. You, you don't get that, that ski race fitness no. unless, you, unless you're doing some serious speed. That's definitely not the same, but yep. Yeah, so it was only two or three days before Christmas that we, we said, all right, let's, um, let's get up there. There's, there's um, enough enough clear water now to, to have a good crack. And um, yeah, did that with, with Steve just before Christmas and just after Christmas then with the, um, the team. And at that, that point in time, you and, you and Cody were skiing and we all started training together over, over January and, and putting in a fair bit of time behind the boat. But the biggest thing for us and for me personally wasn't even time behind the boat fitness-wise. It was time behind the boat working out the trust and the communication between driver, observer, and skier. That was just something that was new to all three of us and something that we knew we had to perfect before, before race day. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I, I know, like I've skied behind Jess and Dan and 
essentially I've been putting my life in their hands before and I like I don't think he could be in safer hands to be honest but what was it a big call initially for you to go yes okay I accept what you're telling me Daniel and go with it or were you pretty pretty on from day dot that he he was going to be giving you the exact info you needed it was definitely trial and error, um, and I think we all knew that. We all knew that it wasn't going to be perfect straight away. And even from Dan's perspective, he'll still say that initially um, what's very tricky for him is he's facing backwards, so his lefts and rights are opposite to mine. Opposite, yeah. But then the boat's going the same way as me, so he actually, there was a couple of times when you're driving along pretty quickly and he's trying to work out whether it's left corner or right corner, or if he's telling me to go left or right, because that's um, that can often be the opposite very very quickly in terms of instructions. Um, pretty soon we had big L's and big R's printed in the back of the boat, <laughs> which were my left and right, so he could um, have that reference point straight away when he was uh, he was telling me um, which way we were turning or or which way to go. That was that was his reference point and. There was definitely a couple of times early on in our first couple of runs where I'd simply let go or they'd stop the boat and come back and go, now, did you hear when I said this? And I'd go, I thought you meant, um, I yep. thought you meant go left. And he went, no, this way or that way, whatever, whatever yep. it was back then. But yeah, there was definitely times where we'd stop, clarify and go, all right, from now on use this word instead of um, use sweeping left, hard left and tell me when the corner's starting and the corner ends and things like that, just so we were we were clear on it because there was sometimes there where we'd do a, a short, sharp corner or more of a, um, a sweeping corner, which goes for a lot longer, and I'd still be leaning into that turn, but we were starting to speed up already, so I'm still leaning, um, waiting for that turn to continue. Because I hadn't yet that the corner had finished. He told me when the corner started. So they were just things that we had to perfect over time. And um, yeah, yeah, I, I guess it's similar in a way to you know like World Rally Championship stuff, where you it's you can be the best navigator in the world and you can be the best driver in the world, but there's there's not necessarily that connection until you've worked to, together and you know got your language down pat. Hundred percent, hundred percent, and I think that's what made it so much more I mean it's fulfilling and rewarding regardless but the team aspect and the the trust aspect just made it that even more rewarding to cross that finish line especially that first year even though we only competed in the the disability category on the Saturday in the 20k short course um yeah crossing that finish line especially for us first year round first go with um such a short window to actually train behind the race boat in race conditions due to the, the river conditions was, yeah, it was something that was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, I, I, can, I can still remember getting the word and stuff. And it was, it was very, it's, again, it's, it's you just doing you, but I think it's also people recognizing maybe in themselves that, that there's more to it than, you know, what what they initially thought, which is very cool. It's you know, to give give people the opportunity to see that, you know, it's not just day to day, it that there's other people out there doing doing their thing is is very cool. Um 
So you, the first year you ran disabled, yep. um, you came back the next year to run 60 or 70? 60. 60, okay. 60 the first year. We had, we had the option of both. Um, and because we were going from disabled, which I suppose this was the, I suppose the, the funny thing about ski racing and, and still is, you can ski in disabled class and there's no speed restrictions. No speed as, soon, yep. as soon as we wanted to, to ski the full 80, all of a sudden there was no disabled class that skis the full 80. They only do the 20. So if you want to ski the full 80, which Ski Racing Australia were a little bit hesitant about to, to begin with, but they said, okay, well, we need to give you a, a speed restriction. And that was um, 70 mile an hour, but we, we opted for 60 um, just for, um, for first year. First year doing it, we might as well... Yeah, sort of do it with something that we're we're confident confident in, and uh, out of the that was that was a year where we were able to have a much better crack at training. We were behind the race boat from sort of September all the way through until February, doing some some really long runs. Uh, spent yes did a did a lot of k's in that in that summer um, leading up to the eighty, and as much as I would have wanted to to do a lot more racing just due to my, the nature of my work and having to travel a lot uh, probably didn't allow me to do as many other races as I would have liked. Um, but that was just the, the reality of it. So Southern 80 was again the, the next race on the calendar for me. And also I wanted to be, to be loyal to the team that gave me the opportunity. I probably could have gone to other people and other teams and, and ski more races, but um, Dan and Jess had their own commitments as well and could only make it to certain races and um, they had their own their own priorities and we still still had other guys skiing with them as well. So I couldn't just take up all of their time and resources. Um, but yeah, 2018 was the, the first time then I transitioned from uh, the disability class across to the able-bodied class and out of the, the 20... 25 or 28 boats that were in the field for the, the 60 mile an hour class. Um, we, we came in ninth position, um, including having a, having an offer at about the 25 K mark. It wasn't a, wasn't a, wasn't a big stack by any means. It was just a, um, having a real rough stretch of water and, uh, just clipping the edge of the wake and the, the, the rough stretch of water at the same time. And, going to get pulled over the front. It was one of those split second moments when you think to yourself, I can either hang on and this might recover or end really badly. Yeah, or, or, or worse, yep, 100%. Or, or I'm going to let go and get back up as quick as we can. So we might have lost a couple of minutes there, but still crossed the finish line. And yeah, oh. ninth position, we were uh, yeah, definitely definitely pretty happy with that. Well, even though Dan... Even though Dan thought I should have held on and recovered it, yeah, would have right. been would have been fine. Classic Dan, but uh, <laughs> yeah, like sixty mile an hour is one of the most competitive classes out there. So the top ten, regardless, is is bloody impressive. Um, oh. And yeah. Uh, yeah, something I'm yeah definitely definitely very proud of. But like you said, I think it was one of those things that uh, not only was it to prove to myself that that sort of thing's possible, but also to other people that no matter what their situation or their goals are, that, that they're possible to. Yeah, shit on. Um, now, the next year, I mean, yeah, let's talk about it. Like, you're not the first and you certainly won't be the last person to blow me off. 
But like we had plans to run 70 the next year and like it didn't happen. So am I still a chance for that run in the future or what? Well, if your body holds up, we're definitely a chance. Well, easy, mate. I'm getting old. Calm down. <laughs> nah, 100%. I mean, if anything comes out of this podcast, if, if you're going to commit to the listeners that uh, you'll, be, you'll be skiing bank robber and bat will be teaming up, then let's do it. Mate, what could possibly go wrong? If that's not a team made in heaven, I don't know what it is. If that's not famous last words, I don't know what. <laughs> <laughs> hey, won't, be, won't be the first bad decision I made and it won't be the last. So there's no... 100%. So, yeah, 60 or 70 mile an hour, I would be, uh, I'd be definitely very keen to get back beyond the boat. Yeah, very um, cool. Well, hey, let's, let's, let's hope we're racing next year, let alone putting that together. So that'd be a good start. Yeah. If COVID-19 could piss off and leave us all alone in 2021, it'd be uh, yeah, very nice for uh, everyone, I think. Mm, definitely. Definitely. Um, now, you're involved in a charity event that uh, sees teams scan the length of the Murray through South Australia. Um, tell me a bit about Ski for Life. Yeah, 100%. So, yeah, it's actually got a closer connection to ski racing than you probably think. It was in the, the first year that I skied the Southern 80 in the disability class. Uh, the Channel 9 program this time next year did a feature story on that, um, on me skiing in that and becoming the first legally legally blind skier to do so and and that being my goal and chasing that through that some guys in south australia who are heavily involved in the organizing of ski for life saw that and got in touch with me and they they explained the event so basically each march long weekend over over that three days uh teams come from all over australia to ski relay style in a social skiing social skiing aspect uh, from one skier always through three skiers behind the boat at any one time, 456 kilometres from Murray British to Redmark to raise funds and awareness for mental health, wellbeing and suicide prevention. So when I first got approached to uh, come on board and be the ambassador, I was yeah, very humbled and very privileged to, to be involved with such an event, but we've now been three years in a row now and yeah, I'm still, still currently the Ski for Life ambassador and this year, just gone, we had uh, just over, I think we had 22 teams and over 250 people attend the event and raised uh, nearly $100,000 for, for suicide prevention and, and mental health programs. And Ski for Life is a registered charity. So the way that works is we actually um, have that money available for people right around Australia if you're doing an initiative um, running a community event, an online event um, to promote mental health, uh, to increase well-being, or whether it's around suicide prevention, whatever that is, you can actually jump on skiforlife.com.au and apply for a grant and we can help support those events. So it's, a, it's an absolutely amazing event. And I think if we're going to continue on signing each other up for things, if, we're, if, we're, if you're signing me up to, to get back back behind the, the boat and uh, on the boat, then then I'll uh, see you next year at Ski for Life if it goes ahead. Mate, 100%. I, uh, I tried to get there last time and had a few work dramas getting in the way, but I am, uh, I've been angling towards that next one. Super keen to get involved. Um, again, if you listen to this, mate, there's, there's so many worse courses out there. It's an amazing cause. 
basically you just get to ski for three days. I mean, so there's worse ways to spend your time. So if you think you can put a team together, get on board that too, because uh, all my reports are it's a bloody good time. But yeah, it's a it's an amazing event. Uh, one you definitely wouldn't regret coming across to, and uh, I think it's a it's a good one too because the whole family can get involved. It's a team event, and whether you ski one kilometre or you ski the full 456 or anywhere in between, um, it's it's sort of bigger than that. And it's a heap of fun and it's for a great cause. So, yeah, definitely encourage all the listeners to, to look it up and check it out and we'd love to see um, some of the ski racing family come across for it. Yeah, that's cool. That's very cool. Um, like we, we touched briefly on safety and a few other things through there and I just said hello earlier to your lovely wife, Amy. Um, how's she with all the stupid things you do? Is, is she okay with it? Is she on your case about it? I mean... You know, all the all the stupid things I do. Well, I haven't done anything stupid. Um, did you not? Have I not seen a photo of you on a quad bike or riding a motorbike or tracking Kokoda or? Yeah, okay. You know, okay. I'd like to go on if you want. Okay, maybe I'll just eliminate some <laughs> of these things from my uh, memory, or, or I don't class them as stupid. One of the two. Uh, now she's she's incredible. She's very very supportive um, of. Of everything I do, and half the time she comes up with the ideas as well, and is always thinking of something for me to do next. And sometimes I've got to sort of rein her back in. It was only last year, last year, where um, for my birthday she gives me this voucher, and I go, "Well, that's great. I can't read the voucher." <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's okay. I've um, I've made made it into really, really, really big letters that you can feel and and maybe make out. So one letter at a time. I've spelt out, you are going skydiving. But by the time I got through all the letters, I just put the word together skydiving and I've looked at her and I've gone, we're going skydiving? And she's just looked at me and gone, no, you are going skydiving. (laughs) (laughs) We are not, you are. So when when your fiance is buying you skydiving for your birthday and and throwing you out of an aeroplane, she's... She's definitely supportive and, and is all for um, some of my adventurous habits and, and love, for, love for adrenaline, love for trying new things and, and pushing the limits. Yeah, well, so maybe I had it all wrong. I thought she was a smart one, but, uh, you know. Yeah, I mean, I mean we, can, we can debate that another day. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not on this podcast, that's for sure. Um, it's not ski racing related, but it's still pretty bloody awesome. Um, I just want, if you... If you can, to do you, do you want to have a chat about your Kokoda tracks? Because you've done two of them, which yep. one, one in itself is pretty bloody epic, but two's, two's next level. Um, h- how did you end up there? Why did you think it was a good idea? And, you know, what was it like? Okay, so Kokoda was one of those things that... As a, as a young kid, I always had a sort of patriotism and a love for Australian culture, Australian history, and therefore the Anzacs and the Anzac spirit. And Kokoda had always been on my list. When I was my side, I thought, might as well bought that off the list. And again, the, the link to ski racing comes back because uh, we were on a speaking tour up in Alice Springs and I'd, I'd done a couple of couple of gigs up there and Amy and I actually tacked on a, a few days where we 
travelled out through some of the, the rain country to the, the east and west of Alice Springs and we were doing some some small little hikes and Kokoda had just been an idea in the back of our heads that we thought we should look at doing that. We should should look at going across there. So this was the October before the first Southern 80 that I did. And as we're, as we're climbing up this range, it was really rocky. Uh, the rocks were dry and slippery. It was tough. Amy had to guide me. We were the only two people there. I looked over a few times and we got about three quarters of the way to the top. And I, I slipped over again and I said to Amy, I said, don't ever mention Kokoda to me ever again. I'm not doing it. And it's a, it's a shit idea. I can't see. It's impossible. It's ridiculous. Can't even make it on a 3K hike, let alone a 100-kilometre hike through the Papua New Guinea jungle. The next time I thought about Kokoda was after I crossed the finish line because I think I had the southern... I know I had the southern 80 on mind um, as we were climbing that range out west of Alice Springs as well. And it was probably just that little bit too much to think about, a little bit too overwhelming. And I probably had to concentrate on, on one thing to, be, to begin with. And once I, once I crossed that finish line, I sort of reproved to myself that, that things were possible and, and things could, could be made to happen. And there were, there were ways around um, things that seemed impossible. So it was crossing that finish line for the first time that reignited um, that dream of doing Kikoda. And in September that year, that's when we took on the Kikoda track for the first time. And we, we raised over 50 grand for Seed Foundation Australia, which is an Indigenous charity that um, puts, puts young Indigenous people um, through the Northern Territory and Queensland through uh, tertiary education um, to work in the healthcare um, sector where they're sort of very underrepresented, um, which is a really, really cool thing. And then when we did it, it was by far uh, one of the toughest things I've ever done. Not so much physically. I knew it was going to be tough physically, and don't get me wrong, it was. But mentally was a thing that I hadn't accounted for because constantly I had to be described every single step uh, seven days in a row up to 14 hours a day. So, like, literally the instructions from the people in my group because they'd constantly rotate because it was tiring for them as well having to not only walk the track themselves, but translated into words for me to picture and understand. And then I had uh, one of the local importers behind me just sort of um, balancing and, and holding my pack um, if need be when there, was, uh, when there was some slippery terrain or some, some hairy terrain or bamboo bridges over, over rushing creeks and, and rivers. That's when they came into their own. But... Literally, the, the instructions and the guidance was down to the detail of being your next step is with your left foot, 45 degrees to your left, 30 centimetres high, up over a tree root, down to a rock. Yeah, then I'd wow. do that step, then it was next step. Now, yes, there was times where, all right, we've got 10 metres where it's um, sort of fairly flat, but on an incline up, so which means the, the ground's doesn't have much on it, fairly flat and slippery, and we've got 10 metres straight up, straight behind me, follow my footsteps, and then I'm just honing in and listen to the, the footsteps and follow them. That'd get a, 
10-meter break, and I'd get a 10-meter break. But then I might be straight back to literally step-by-step -step instructions. So it was yeah, definitely by day, day four or five, mentally, I was just cooked. My brain was fried and people are telling me to go right and I'm going left and telling me to step up and I'm not, not doing anything. And there was a couple of times there where I just had to take a break for 10 or 15 minutes and sort of think about nothing and, and then keep going. So that was, that was by far the hardest part. Um, but other than Amy, um, we, we had an absolutely amazing group. Don't get me wrong, but when I was over there, there was just a few people um, back at home that I thought I would love to do this with. And, and that's why we went and did it again. Um, collectively, we raised, raised a fair bit of money for a whole range of different charities, um, Ski for Life being one of them. And there was about 15 that went over last year. And we were actually at the main battle site, Isarava, on our day eight um, for Anzac Day dawn service. So we that's camped incredible. there Anzac Day Eve. And my, I had my dad with me. And I actually helicoptered in Dad's dad, my grandpa, um, oh. because he lived over in Papua New Guinea for a few years while he was younger, always had a coat on his bucket list, has read every single book about it, always wanted to do it, but um, at that time was 83 and, and passed it and wasn't, wasn't able to do it physically. So we had three generations there for the Anzac Day dawn service, which was yeah, really, really special. Um, right, that's incredible. Whether I do it again, I don't know. Um, the yes, the trip we did last year, I had a severe side effect to the malaria medication that I was on, and something that wasn't wasn't really common. But from day three through until day nine on the track, uh, I was getting on average sort of between two and three hours sleep, and I was hardly able to eat at all. Uh, it was yeah, quite a quite a challenge. Um, yeah, and, no, and then, and then, sort of had to jump on the plane. Wasn't able to celebrate with everyone in Papua New Guinea just because I was cooking bed straight on the plane, straight to the hospital, and and on a trip for twenty four hours in Melbourne um, while they did tests. And um, yeah, probably another couple of weeks to recover from from symptoms and get off the malaria medication and get onto to something better for me. So that was that was challenging, and I was, at the time I was thinking to myself, I would never ever go back to that joint. Uh, <laughs> I've done it twice, don't need to go back there again. But I think one day, if if Famous I had a, last words, mate. Famous that's last it. Words. Exactly right. You you, ne you never know. So I'm just going to leave it out there and go. Hopefully one day I'll be back, but we'll, we'll wait and see. It's oh, a very that's... special place, and if anyone does ever get the chance to go, um, yeah, definitely take it with both hands. It's by far. Um, by far one of the best things I've ever done. Oh, that, no, it's in incredible. But, like some of your experiences are just mind-boggling, as is. Let alone the fact that you're you're doing it with two percent sight, mate. It's it's bloody impressive. Um, all right, well, I've we'll probably taken up enough of your time for serious stuff. Um, I don't even know where you'd begin, but this is your chance, mate. Like, did anyone you want to thank? Anyone, anything you want to say? You know, big something up. Do, do what you got to do, buddy. This is this is your opportunity. <laughs> do what I got to do. Well, I think do from a do. from a ski racing perspective, I'd just like to put it out there to to thank the whole ski racing community. Um, one to being so 
open-minded um, and welcoming to, to someone who is a little bit different coming in and, and having a goal that um, I haven't been in ski racing all my life and, and to be able to sort of be welcomed with open arms was um, pretty incredible. And then more specifically to, to Dan and Jess um, from 99 Psycho Clowns to, to take me in from yourself, from Cody, from Steve Berry, Mick Pay, all those guys that have, um, all you guys that have, I suppose, taught me the ropes and given me feedback on technique and built up my confidence. And we've worked through different challenges and safety techniques and replacing those eyes of mine that don't work too well with um, yeah, different things that, that has made ski racing possible. I think has, uh, yeah, definitely big thanks to, to everyone involved and um, also the organisers that have allowed me to ski. And uh, by the sounds of this podcast, uh, I have to strap on the ski a couple more times and get back get there again, mate. Yep. Get, get back on the water. I, I got to say, I was pretty relieved there, but I thought you were going to bring up a time almost run over you with the jet ski. But I mean, you just, you just have. <laughs> well, you didn't say it, to be fair. So, I mean, oh, I knew it didn't happen. To... Yeah. It made for well, some really good TV footage. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. You can you can claim claim fame to some of that footage that's been used here, there, and everywhere. Every time I saw it, I was like, "Ooh, that was oh, close. Good times, good times." Uh, nah. I don't think you were Dan's favourite when we got back. Hey, he was alright. He's you just, you just got no how to handle him, mate. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm I'm still learning. Yeah, I got no idea. So, uh, no, seriously, mate, I I really appreciated that. It was just good to catch up, anyway. But I. I think it's it's amazing. You as a person are amazing. That's cool. But to be able to come back on and spend the time to share your story and you know just give people a bit of an insight is amazing. And I cannot thank you enough, mate. Mate, thank you for having me. And um, yeah, to the listeners, thanks for thanks for listening. I hope you got something out of it. And yeah, we are from from bank robber and bat. We look forward to seeing you on the water. Absolutely. Hopefully uh, see everyone at the uh, 2021 Southern 80 when we're lining up together, mate. All right, let's do it. Cheers, mate. What an absolutely amazing story. It is hard via Zoom, but Mick did a fantastic job. And thanks so much, Ben, for taking the time out to join us on the rope. Okay, it is time for our giveaway. It's over to you, Bishop. God love you, Lumpy. Fantastic chat with Mick and Ben Pettengill. Well, this week's question to win an on-the-rope T-shirt brought to you by the beautiful Savage Force is what was the name of the boat that Ben did his first ski race behind? Flick us a private message on our Facebook page and good luck. Well, that's all we've got time for this podcast. My name is Lumpy. Until next time, you take care and thanks for joining us on the rope and I'll see you on the bank. Audio production has been proudly produced by Mouse Media in association with our On The Rope podcast sponsors, Coley's Tow Bars and Bull Bars, Mark Savage Merchandise, ARS Automation and Robotic Services, TJH Coaching and Consulting, Rapid Concepts, Spend Productions, Bad Lad Australia and Bisho Media. <laughs> <laughs>